0: If we could go ahead and get started this evening, you should have a page being passed out to you. Does everybody have a page, front and back? If you don't have a sheet, would you raise your hand? Those who don't have a sheet, okay? I've got a a few introductory words for probably 15 minutes that I want to go over with you. And then we'll get into a 24-minute video. And then if time allows at the end, about another 15 minutes that I have for you. So I kind of want to split it up that way. Well, I want to ask you to take your Bibles out before we get started with the video. Find Romans. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And when you find Romans 10, find verse 13. You should, again, if you've just come in, you should have a front and back sheet. If you don't, uh, maybe one of the ushers would get one to you. But uh, let's talk about the importance of this doctrine. And I want to encourage you on your page there to write some of these things down. When we talk about the importance of the doctrine of Scripture, folks, I mean, look at everything we're seeing today in the world. You, you look at what's going on in the world today. You even look at what's going on in the church. Much of the church today across the landscape of America. And, and the way that, uh, you know, things like abortion and same-sex relationships are even so rampant in some sections of the church how can something like that even be? It's because we have compromised on the doctrine of Scripture. Because this has to be our roadmap, this has to be our plumb line. And when you move away from this, you get into, like in the book of Judges, where everybody just did what was right in their own eyes, right? You start throwing the Bible out on certain key issues and Where does it stop? Right? So let's think about the importance of this doctrine. We could say, first of all, everything that we know about God, we know from the Bible. Now, I'll say some words in a minute about general revelation, too. But basically, everything we know about God, we know from the Bible. If it were not for the words of Scripture, we would be left trying to figure out everything on our own and trying to go by what we feel. You know, I feel this way, or I feel this way, or I feel that way. Everybody's just got their own opinion about things. So, write down... uh, Everything we know about God, we know from the Bible. And secondly, you could write down there, the Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel. Look at Romans 10. Romans 10, and pick up reading with me in verse 13. Paul says there, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one... They have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so if we're going to know about God, we've got to learn about Him and His plan of salvation from the Scripture. We also see from Mark chapter 4, if you want to turn back to Mark chapter 4. And verse 4, Mark 4, verse 4, that we see there that the Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. The Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. What did Jesus say there? It says, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me, uh, i tell you what, if a couple of guys can, a couple of folks along the back in case others walk in, can somebody help me with this as folks continue to come in? What did I say? Did I say Mark? I meant Matthew 4-4. Yes, I'm I'm reading from my Bible, Matthew 4-4. I'm sorry that I said Mark, Uh, Matthew 4-4. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so the Bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life. So everything we know about God comes from the pages of Scripture. If it weren't for the Bible, we would be left trying to figure out on our own. The Bible is necessary for knowledge of the gospel, the Bible is also necessary for maintaining spiritual life. Uh, write down Joshua 1.8. Joshua 1.8. This, of course, was when God was speaking to Joshua. Joshua was taking over for Moses. And remember what God told him in verse 8? He said, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And so for Joshua to lead the people of God and to have success in doing so, he had to uh, be rightly related to the scripture. Several other passages, Psalm 1. Well-known psalm, psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not weather. Whatever they do prospers. So what do you see there? If you want the life that is blessed and the life that is fruitful and nourished. Where does that come from? From the Scripture. And then turn over to Psalm uh, 119. And this is going to be your homework for next week. from Psalm 119. What I want to ask you to do is get a highlighter or a pen that uh, a highlighter is going to need to be one that doesn't bleed through uh, the pages of your Bible. But go through Psalm 119, uh, the longest chapter that we have there in the Bible. And he's going to talk over and over and over again about what the Scripture does. Uh, For instance, uh, here's what you can highlight. You can highlight things like verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Look at verse 11. How how do we keep our lives free from sin? What's he say here? I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so what I want to ask you to do is go through Psalm 119 with a notepad or a journal and just write down every instance what he's saying that the Word of God will do for his life. In one place in there, he says, your precepts will be my counselors. Your precepts will be my counselors. So counsel from the Word of God. So go through that Psalm on your own. Now, a couple of other verses I want to get you to look at before we start our video. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 16 and 17, Paul says there, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, And training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what all do you have there? A proper doctrinal foundation for correcting of your life and training so that you can be equipped... Whatever God calls you to do, you can be equipped by. And if you go back and read all of chapter 3, Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, the world is getting worse and worse and worse. Just look around. The world is getting worse. But Timothy, you've learned better. You have the scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. So the Scripture points out our sin and need of a Savior and who that Savior is, right? We learn that from the Scripture. And then once coming to faith in Jesus, the Scripture continues to work in our lives to disciple us and equip us for Christian service. Then what did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount about the Scripture? Does anybody recall? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus think about the scripture? In the Sermon on the Mount, he made a statement about heaven and earth. Does that help? Heaven and earth's going to pass away. But not one jot or tittle of God's word will pass away. A jot and a tittle in the Hebrew language were the smallest... Marks of lettering. It would be equivalent in the English language uh, to putting an apostrophe in a word. Or even a, a punctuation like a period. A jot or a tittle, that's, that's the equivalent of it. In the Hebrew language, a jot and a tittle, the smallest unit in that language. And Jesus says not even, not even... A tiny little thing like an apostrophe Is going to pass away From my Father's word All heaven and earth is going to pass away But not one jot or tittle of His word And then what Jesus say in John 17 Father sanctify them With your truth And then what did He say Your word is truth And so Think of all of that together, the importance of the doctrine of the Bible. Everything we know about God, we know from the Bible. I will come back again after the video and talk about general revelation and what that means because there are some things we can learn from general revelation, but we can't can't learn about salvation from general revelation. But anyway, just about everything we know about God is from the Bible. The Bible is necessary for a knowledge of the gospel the bible is necessary for maintaining spiritual life it it makes us wise for salvation it disciples us and it equips us for our christian calling folks can we overstate this i don't think we can overstate this the importance of the doctrine of the bible Christians who cut themselves off from this are really doing themselves a great disservice. Well, let's watch this 24-minute video and then we're going to come back and have some things to say more about this. This is Dr. Stephen Nichols. And tonight's video is very introductory, very simple, very simple. Very elementary and very introductory.
1: Probably like you, I have become addicted to my GPS, and uh, I was supposed to speak somewhere in some evening, and I was traveling. It was dark, of course, and it was raining, and uh, one of our sons was in the back seat, and I had pressed the button to scroll through to see that to get to this destination that I wanted to get to, there were quite a few turns, quite a few exits, quite a few routes. And uh, as we were making one of those exits onto a road, all of a sudden, the GPS screen just went blank. It just shut off. And I had just merged onto a highway. Uh, Turned out what happened was uh, my late model car, the cigarette lighter, no longer worked, and... And many minutes ago, the thing had switched over to battery, and eventually the battery died out. So there I was, on a highway, in the dark, trying to get somewhere, having no idea where I was supposed to go. My GPS was just gone. If you stop and think about it, living without the concept of revelation is like that all the time. Imagine this. Imagine if you didn't have God's word. Imagine if you didn't know of the concept of revelation. You would never have a map. You would never have that, that genius instrument that is chock-full of thousands of maps and streets and engineers just loaded it. You wouldn't have any of that. You'd be on your own. you 'd be in the dark. You wouldn't be sure where you were going, and you would have no idea how to get there. Without the doctrine of revelation, we really would have no hope. We'd have no hope at all. There's a great saying, and I know around Ligonier, everyone knows this saying. It goes back to Calvin's day. It sort of reflects the Reformation in Geneva, and it's the saying in Latin, Uh, The English translation is, after darkness, light. That light of God's Word revealed that penetrates and overcomes the darkness. But think about that darkness for a moment. Think about living in darkness. That's what uh, living without revelation really means. Well, we're going to talk about the doctrine of Revelation and this session together, and we're going to use that as our starting point to talk about the doctrine of Scripture. And we're going to see how we understand some basic ideas about Revelation, how we can sort of unpack that as we move along to get at one of the bedrock, core, foundational doctrines of our faith, the doctrine of Scripture. So, before we go any further, let's look to Scripture. And I'd like to look at two texts, we could pick any number of passages uh, from the Bible if we wanted to, but I want to look at two texts with you that will, will serve as sort of a frame for our discussion for these next six uh, series together. The first text is from Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Now, we'll be talking later about interpretation. And uh, one of the things that we will talk about when we get to interpretation is context is king. Uh, We we should always be paying attention to the context in which a verse is found. And the context here, of course, is Paul's relationship with the church at Thessalonica. And in chapter 2, he's sort of reminiscing a little bit. Uh, You can imagine Paul, he had a great ministry there at Thessalonica among the Thessalonians. And now that he's separated from them, he's writing this letter directly to them. And of course, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so, this letter to the Thessalonians becomes a letter to us as well. But Paul's uh, remembering particularly the good time that he had there at that church. And we know from, to Stephen, a basic understanding of Paul's ministry that not every city was a similar experience for Paul, was it? So I imagine this was a a joyful reminiscence for him, and you can almost picture him sort of smiling fondly as he writes this. But as he remembers his time there, this is what he says, Uh, this is where he focuses and what he is thankful mostly for in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, let's just unpack this for a little bit. Uh, First of all, this is the Word that was preached So, we see right away how preaching and proclamation, the the speaking of God's Word is crucial. The second thing we see, and this is most important, Paul calls it what it is, doesn't he? This isn't the Word of Men. This isn't, you know, the the dialogues of Plato. This this isn't the the thoughts of of Seneca, the the Roman political philosopher. These aren't the, the ideas of Aristotle. These aren't the words of men. These words of men, these eloquent and thoughtful and poetic words of men that Paul was very familiar with in the first century. These aren't the words of men. This is the Word of God. We need to remember that right off the bat. What's also fascinating here is what Paul says this Word does. It's at work in you. It's at work in you. Uh, The word here is formation, is actually the word, or maybe the biblical idea is better of transformation. But, you know, you've seen these canyons, you've seen waterfalls, you've seen riverbeds, right? As the forces of nature, as the flowing of water, as the winds do their work, right? They, They cut off the edges, they smooth out a path, That's what God's Word does. It comes into us. It takes root in us like a seed, and it grows, and it works. Sometimes that formation is hard, isn't it? The the smoothing off of the rough. uh, Luther made a comment once that God's Word sort of cuts us like a knife, right? It assaults us, is what Luther says, but then he says, God's word also comforts us. So, when we're talking about scripture, we have to remember these, these three very fundamental things that the word of God is communicated, it's preached, it's proclaimed, that the word of God is, in fact, the word of God. It's God's word, it's top down. And thirdly, this isn't just some interesting book to read. This isn't just some fascinating piece of literature. It works in us. It works on us. And it transforms us into the image of Christ, which is what all of us are destined to be. So, we see this in 1 Thessalonians 2. We'll come back to this verse probably uh, throughout the rest, but at least we get an initial glimpse at it. But the next verse I want to take you to is John chapter 6. Now, here too, we'll go to the end of this chapter. It's a very long chapter, uh, 66 to 69. This is one of those chapters when, you know, you're doing your reading through the Bible and you have to read like four or five chapters a day to do it and you come across a chapter with 70 some verses and you think, oh, well, this, this is going to take me a while. This is a very packed chapter. It covers just two days in Christ's life, fascinating days. The first day is the feeding of the 5,000. The second day, not so many people are there. In fact, Christ's teaching that they have to eat of Him starts sending people away, literally in droves. I guess Christ, see Christ never read the, the Dale Carnegie book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, right? He, he missed some of those PR cues. But we get to verse 66, and this should strike you After this, well, the this is all this hard teaching that Jesus is giving, that you have to eat of Him. And then He he sort of even ups the ante when He says, uh, By the way, you can't come to Me unless the Father draws you to Me. They they couldn't handle this. The crowds liked the show of Jesus, but they couldn't handle this teaching. So after this, many of His disciples went away. They left. They no longer walked with him. And so Jesus said to the 12, do the math, 5,000 to 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him. Now, we knew Simon Peter would speak up, right? We knew that. Simon Peter is one of those characters. We know how he's going to act. So if the 12 are there, Simon Peter is likely going to speak for them. Here, though, He is right on the money. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, Just stop and think about that for a little bit. Let's go back to our scenario with asking the question about revelation. If someone is not going to accept this as God's Word and... Our culture is riddled with that. Human history is full of examples of those who did not see legitimacy and credibility in this book. What are they going to do? They're going to have to go somewhere. They're going to go after this guru, or they're going to seek this experience, or they're going to try out this philosophy, or they're going to go this route. And Peter sort of puts it right on the line, doesn't he? where are we going to go? Why would we go there? Why would we go there? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? So, I want to use these two texts as a frame to talk about this doctrine of Scripture. And uh, to to sort of jump in a little bit here, we'll get right into the point of Revelation. Now, theologians uh, tend to divide Revelation into two categories. Uh, Theologians love categories, right? They they like to organize things and make sense of things. And that's actually helpful for us because, after all, there's a lot of information in that book, isn't there? There's 66 books in that Bible and there's a lot of teaching. So to organize it and categorize it can be pretty helpful. And so theologians give us this uh, doctrine of revelation, which... uh, Comes uh, from the, the Greek word, literally means to lift the cover off of, uh, to reveal. Right. We we have the word apocalypse, and when we think of the apocalypse, we think of uh, you know something out of uh, George Lucas. You know the skies raining down with fire, and and uh, there's some sort of cosmic battle. Apocalypse literally means to take off the cover, right? This is when something's cooking on the stove. You know it smells really good, and you just want to take a look. And so you pull the lid off the pot, and there it is, and you see it. That's all revelation means. Now, we divide revelation into these two categories, general and special. And general revelation is essentially the cosmos, the world that God made. But we could look at this in terms of some particular ideas. And I, I like to sketch this maybe in terms of four different particular ways we can understand general revelation. One is just the world itself, the world of nature. And uh, we, we all have this, uh, here we are in, in uh, Orlando or wherever you may be watching this, uh, we can all find these beautiful spots that we can see. We can all see uh, the beauty of nature somewhere uh, around us in our environment. And so we have nature. But we also have God revealed in nature's laws, the laws that govern nature. So uh, here's Newton, right, uh, sitting under the tree, and the apple falls on his head, and he makes a startling observation. The apple is always falling down, right? For some reason, apples don't fall up. So, so we have these laws that sort of govern nature. And we have seasons. Um, well, maybe in some places we don't always have seasons. Where I live, we actually have seasons. There's winter, and then there's spring, and there's summer, and there's fall. And usually they go in that order. Um, usually a season doesn't get skipped over, right? Uh, there's order in nature. And those laws that govern nature reveal that there is, in fact, a creator behind what we see. And then there is, so we've got the nature itself. We've got these laws that govern nature. And so we can say, well, God both creates and He sustains. But then we also see special revelation and humanity. And here, too, we could see this. Just our physical Makeup, Uh, think of the ear, the the intricate parts, microscopic parts that construct our ear, and all of those parts working in harmony so that we can hear a sound. Think of the human eye. These are revelations, again, of a creator. And then there's not only our physical but there's that sort of psychological piece to us. Okay, so we can talk about uh, the physical part of human nature. We could talk about that maybe as uh, someone committed to an evolutionary worldview would like to have us try to explain, well, here's how these physical characteristics develop, but how do we explain what is more than physical to us? How do we explain the full complexity of who we are? So, these are parts of general revelation. And we call it general because it is, in fact, universal. It is open to all. We also call it general because it is a general revelation of God as Creator. Now, we see this in Scripture itself. Uh, You can track down some of these texts. On your own, but we see this in Psalm 19, where we have a discussion of nature in the first uh, six or seven verses of Psalm 19. Uh, We see it in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about both the cosmos and our conscience. So there he is catching that idea of the world itself and also being human as a revelation of God. We see Paul in Acts chapter 17 using an argument from general revelation to show that God is, in fact, the Creator. So we see instances of creation as revelation that God is, that He exists, and that He has created all things and that He upholds them by His hand. So that's all general revelation. Special revelation or sometimes we call it particular revelation, is where God specifically speaks and directly speaks. Now, we see different instances of this in Scripture. We, we see how God speaks directly through visions to the prophets. We see how uh, God um, even uses a donkey, right, at one point in the story of the of Scripture to convey His revelation. But what we have now, here we are in the uh, 2012, is we have special revelation as contained for us in God's Word, the 66 books of the Bible. And in these 66 books of the Bible, in this special revelation, it's all pointing us to the center of what is this revelation, and that center is Christ. Now, to further help us get a handle on this idea of special revelation, or even just revelation in general, theologians have come up with attributes of revelation. Now, sometimes these are spoken of in terms of attributes of Scripture, like we have the attributes of God, we have the attributes of Scripture. But in reality, uh, these attributes are attributes of revelation. If we understand that they are an attribute of revelation in terms of what that revelation was intended to communicate. So uh, the attributes are, uh, first, the necessity. And we'll just put them all up here and go over them. First is the necessity. Two is the authority. Three is the clarity. Or as some like to say, perspicuity which is an uh, unclear word that means clear, is perspicuity. Four is sufficiency. Now, there's a fifth one that most theologians don't add, but I like to add, and we'll talk about this one. Beauty. But first, necessity. The necessity of Scripture. Here we are back on the road all ready for our GPS to get us to where we need to go, and the GPS goes blank. I am lost without directions, especially if it's a place I've never been, and it's dark, and there's lots of roads between me and where I need to get to. So we absolutely need it. We need revelation. We need nature to point us to nature's God. And we need Scripture To point us to God as the Redeemer. So the first attribute of Scripture, it is not a luxury item. It is not something that's nice to have. It's something that there is no hope without. We are lost in darkness without it. And then we speak of authority. Now, to get at authority, we're going to use two sessions to do this, our next two sessions. To get at authority, theologians use the terms inspiration and inerrancy. But the idea of authority of Scripture is quite simple. The authority of Scripture is linked up with the author of Scripture. In fact, even the authority of revelation. Nature is truthful because it is a revelation of God. Scripture is truthful because it is a revelation of God. And as such, it stands over us. Now, that's a difficult concept for us to grasp. We don't like authority, do we? We buck it, right? And what we need to do is submit to it. Well, we'll explore that. Then we have clarity. Scripture, revelation, is clear. Paul even says this about nature. He says that what has been revealed about God is clear to us so that we are without excuse. In Romans 1, Paul teaches that nature is clear. And so is Scripture, clearly focused on presenting to us the gospel of Christ. Now, just because Scripture is clear doesn't mean everything in there we can always understand. But we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that in a later session. And then sufficiency. Uh, we'll say this a couple times. But this is where the rubber meets the road and the doctrine of Scripture. We can affirm inerrancy. We can affirm that it's authoritative, but do we live like it? Do we say that this is really sufficient for my life? So we'll talk about sufficiency. And we won't talk about this in a particular session, but it is something to remember, the beauty of revelation, both the beauty of natural revelation but also the beauty of Scripture. We forget this sometimes, don't we? This is beautiful poetry, beautiful narrative, well-constructed narratives with fascinating characters. You know, if God wanted to, He could have given us bullet points, right? (laughs) But He didn't. He gave us what we have. So, that's our doctrine of revelation, this thing that we would be totally lost without. And we'll explore it a little bit more in our next sessions together.
0: Okay, you heard him make the distinction, I don't want to confuse you tonight, between general revelation and special revelation. And of course, if you were with me in here a number of months back, this might be a little bit repetitive for you, but uh, general revelation and special revelation are not the same thing. What's general revelation? Nature. Nature. The creation. Uh, listen, Listen for a moment to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul says there, Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes or qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So general revelation is not enough to save, but it is enough to condemn. You with me? Because in general revelation, what do we learn? That there is a God there. We go out at night and look up at the stars and the constellations and we know that a higher being had to have created all of this. Again, you you go up look at up at the heavens at night and you know, you don't you don't see the gospel of John and Revelation and and Romans and all that being spelled out. You know, we're not told all the specifics, but through general revelation, sometimes also called natural revelation, talking about the creation, We know enough to know there's a God there. And Paul talks in Romans 1 about the clarity of that. And what's the complicated word for clarity? Perspicuity. Perspicuity. Theologians talk about the perspicuity of natural revelation and the perspicuity of special revelation. But the clarity of natural revelation that God tells us something about his divine attributes. You know, the psalmist always uh, also talked about that, right? In Psalm 19. What did the psalmist say? The heavens declare the glory of God. So don't get general revelation and special revelation mixed up. General revelation is nature. The created order. It's not enough to save. It is enough to condemn. Uh, General revelation makes it to where no one will ever be able to stand before God on judgment day and say, but God, I didn't know you were there. Nobody can ever say that. It's called general revelation because it, it just communicates a general amount of knowledge that God is there without getting into specifics. There's another reason it's called general general revelation. Does anybody know what the second reason is? It's universal. It's given to everybody. I don't care if your feet are planted on the North American continent or the African continent or whatever continent you happen to be on. You can look up at the heavens at night and see the same thing, right? It's communicated to everybody. General revelation is communicated to everybody. Because everybody can go outside and see nature. So it's general in both of those senses. General, it's a general, general, general amount, I'm tongue-tangled, general amount of information, communicates there's a God there without getting into the specifics, and general in the sense that it's made known to everybody. It's amazing uh, how when you think about this. And the internal witness God has put on the human conscience, which is also a part of general revelation. Wherever our missionaries go, anywhere in the world, in the deepest, darkest regions of the globe, and they find people who have never been contacted by civilization, what do they find out about those people? They're worshiping something. They have idols and altars and things like that that they're bowing down to. Why? Because God's put it on the human heart. There's a God out there. That's part of general revelation too. It's general revelation in the heavens, but also in the human heart, the human conscience. Anything else on that before I move on? Any questions or comments about that? Do, is that is pretty clear pretty elementary pretty understandable rick yeah. right sure absolutely and just innate within the human heart Now, according to the Apostle Paul, there is a response that men make to general revelation. What is that response that oftentimes men make? He goes on to talk about this in Romans chapter 1. Yes, They, they suppress the truth of general revelation. They try to tap it down or push it out of the way and deny it, deny that there's a God. And because of that, they end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator or the works of their own hands or whatever. So they resist it, they hold it down, they pervert it in idolatry, just Look at some of those verbs that Paul uses in Romans 1, 18 and following, how people suppress it. But again, they're without excuse. Now, one other thing I want to say before I get into special revelation more. General revelation and special revelation are in perfect agreement with one another. General revelation is and special revelation, do not teach a different God. They're in perfect agreement. General revelation is often used in apologetics with even people who don't accept the authority of the Bible. The the argument of design in the universe and all that kind of stuff, that's uh, philosophers and theologians and all, will use general revelation in apologetics with, with people who, who don't accept the Bible to get them to the point that hopefully they'll be ready to listen to the Bible. Okay So let's move on and talk about special revelation, because that's what we're going to be talking about in this series. What is special revelation? If general revelation is, is creation and God has also put it on the human heart, human conscience, that there's a God. Uh, what's special revelation? What God has said. And what do we call that? What do we call it? The Bible. Special revelation is the living word and the written word. Who's the living word? Jesus. And the written word is what? The Bible. So, are you with me? Just this means yes, this means no. General revelation, general revelation is what? Creation that testifies that there's a God there. Again, doesn't give you the specifics of everything about Him so you can come to know Him. You need special revelation for that. But general revelation through creation and the human conscience is enough to know that a God is there. And that's enough to condemn. Paul says men are without excuse on the basis of general revelation alone. Because general revelation ought to set them in a pursuit of trying to find out Who this God is that has made this universe. But special revelation conveys all that information so that we will know how to be saved. And it's God's testimony through his written word and his living word. Jesus and the Bible. Now, we're going to get into talking about inerrancy and inspiration when we talk about inspiration that leads to inerrancy there's been a number of views if you'll skip all the way to the uh, end of your page there I've given you some terms and we'll come back and talk about inerrancy also but the dic- dictation view now I think I think one view is best and I'll tell you what that one view is in a minute okay But certainly one view that has some degree of validity for portions of the Bible would be the dictation theory. Because there are places in the Bible where a prophet, for instance, is saying, Thus saith the Lord. And he goes on to tell exactly what God said. Is that the best view overall for the whole Bible, the dictation view? No. But you you certainly have to know that portions of the Bible would be dictation. Okay? But still, it's a somewhat inadequate view. Another inadequate view would be the illumination view. This view simply holds that the biblical writers had the Holy Spirit working on them in such a way that their religious insight was elevated. Inadequate view. In most evangelical circles today, you would not find that view being promoted. The Encounter View. The Encounter View said that, and and this was really popularized by theologians like Karl Barth. We wouldn't agree with Karl Barth. He's probably the most influential theologian of the 20th century. Uh, A Swiss theologian who taught in Germany but was then driven out of Germany when he criticized the Nazi regime. But anyway, according to him, uh, there, there's nothing any more special really about the Bible over against any other book. Except that the Holy Spirit is able to use the Bible in a unique way. When the reader reads the Bible, the Holy Spirit causes a particular passage To speak to your heart in a special way. And in that moment, that portion of the Bible becomes God's Word to you. It's kind of a dangerous view because God's Word is God's Word. It's not that it just kind of subjectively becomes that for you when you read it. It is God's Word. The dynamic view, this this was in large part a, a reaction to the dictation view. This view held that the Holy Spirit inspired the concepts and the thoughts of the writer, but basically left the fleshing out of all of the words to the individual writer. By far, evangelical, conservative evangelicals have said the best view of the doctrine of inspiration would be the verbal plenary view. What does that mean? Verbal plenary. Verbal means that even the words are inspired. It's not that... God just put nice thoughts in somebody's mind and left them to write it down however they wanted to. But God inspired the very words while at the same time respecting the personality, the vocabulary, the education of the person he was using. That God could do both. God could choose a theological mind like the Apostle Paul had with all of his training to write very theologically oriented books like Ephesians and Romans. And that God inspired the very words while, again, respecting Paul's personality cause you read Paul over against John or Simon Peter the styles of writing are very different especially in the Greek language that comes out all the more Paul's Greek is kind of rugged you you read somebody like Luke and or you read somebody like the writer of Hebrews Hebrews the most polished Greek in the whole entire New Testament Paul's is kind of fast-paced and rugged. So God preserved, God used the personality of the writer, but also chose the words, verbal. Plenary means what? Hmm? Means full. The whole Bible, in other words. We don't say, well, you know, Matthew's inspired, Mark, maybe not, Luke, yeah, John, yeah, Acts, maybe not. It's all inspired. All 66 books are what God wants us to have, and they're all inspired. And even the very words are inspired. And that's why you find the phrase verbal plenary. The inspiration extends to the very words And it extends to the entire scope of the Bible. How important is the doctrine of inspiration that leads to inerrancy? Inerrancy being that the Bible is without error in the original autographs. How important is that to the church today? It's critical. When you sit down and you're sharing the plan of salvation with somebody or when you sit down and you're ministering to somebody like Karen Heinlein who's just lost her husband, it's important to know when you open your Bible and start reading, you're sharing God's Word with that person. It's not just somebody's thoughts or good wishes. It's God's Word. It's very important. If we're just sharing somebody's thoughts... Why do, why do we think that's going to make any difference in their lives more than anything else? Okay. We'll talk more next week about... Uh, I'm going to use this guy probably... He's got two sessions on authority. And I, pro, I do want you to see those sessions he does. But I'm using kind of an eclectic approach. I'm going to be drawing from different sources. But next week when we talk about authority, we're going to get into more about inerrancy. Because inspiration leads to inerrancy. That the Bible is without error in all matters pertaining to whatever it speaks to, the Bible speaks truthfully. Let's stop there tonight. We could go a little little bit longer, but at 6.15 we're supposed to be ready to start the uh, the reception for Jennifer. So I don't want to cause us to be late to that. Any questions or comments before we close?
2: Mm-hmm. Possibly. We accept those words as being our scripture. Now, one of the things about it today is speaking to a lot of people and they tend to look at the words of creatures and say, well, that's God inspired. He does use scripture. So what he said is true. Um for me, because the interpretation of scripture is very crucial, the context that he said is king, mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's, it's an excellent question you raise. Uh, what you're raising is the issue of the canon. The canon of Scripture. Uh, how did the church settle on these 66 books? And not... Not 46, not 56, not 36, or not some other 66 altogether. How were these 66 books settled on? The question of canon. And one of the things they certainly looked for concerning the New Testament was words written or shared by an apostle. And so that was one of, not not exclusively, but that was one of the tests of a book being considered to be in the canon of Scripture. Um, So that very insightful question, we need to get into that more, explore that more, if we have time, and I hope we'll have time in this series, I'll try to take time to go into more detail about the canon and the process through which the church recognized the books that we have in the Bible. But again, you've, you've stumbled on one of the criteria perfectly that were these the words of an apostle? So. You what now? Same Holy Spirit, but for a book to be to become a, in the canon of the New Testament, one of the things they looked for was that had been written by an apostle. I guess for me though, I when I say early church, I know that the reason after that being called the Consort of Placy or whatever
2: related to the topic can. But in this particular comment he's writing to the church. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So
2: I guess maybe that's where I sure. was more so thinking, um, where do we as Southern Baptists sort of look at and say, All right, well, as the as the apostles and the missionaries spoke, that too is the word of God. Just by reference to Second Timothy or Second Thessalonians, he said
0: because they were speaking by the Holy Spirit. Well, we believe in a closed canon. As the preacher preaches today, there's not a book number 67 being added to. And that's the danger today in some circles of the charismatic movement. Because some of the statements they make would lead you to believe that they're opening the door at least to adding to the canon. Very dangerous. So today, we simply preach what we believe is already the canon without adding to it we're just giving interpretation we do our studies the best we know how to do to do our studies to do the language studies the historical studies so forth and so on and present that but we're not adding to it in any way and we're not inspired, we speak today about being inspired. Um, I think it would be best if we said, uh, we were reading a passage of scripture and God illuminated something to us. And, and maybe we would avoid the word inspired because that, that communicates something that God did through the prophets and apostles. Yeah. Sure, and again, the process of how that became scripture is what is known as the canon being established. For instance, the apostle Paul wrote two other letters to the Corinthians that we don't have. We have 1st and 2nd Corinthians. There were four letters he wrote to them. God saw fit that two of them were to be considered scripture while two were not. Um, But anyway, the process of canonization that wasn't complete until you get over into the 300s. But as I say, we can talk about that more, that process.